Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello there. Welcome to the Andy J podcast. I feel a bit weird saying that out loud. We've previously been known as the Driven Celebrities podcast, although if the um, superbots that work their magic have been able to do their thing, then actually if you track back on previous episodes of the Driven Celebrities podcast, they'll now be called the Andy J podcast. Uh, the reason for the name change is very simple. If you're aware of the other things we do, the radio show, of course, on Talk Radio is called Driven, and then we have an automotive spin-off podcast called Driven chat and what we had found is that it was muddling the audience slightly so some people were going to driven chat to hear celebrity podcasts and some people were coming to the driven celebrities podcast expecting automotive content and ultimately you had two sets of people that were a little confused and a little disappointed so we're just naming this podcast after me i'm really sorry that sounds horribly egotistical that's enough about me and my name let's talk about who's on the show because i'm so pleased with our guests and we thought we'd come in in this first new branded episode with a bang by the way maybe in a few weeks time we'll we'll just change the name to squiggle like prince did you know and just keep evolving anyway here are your guests for this week i am so 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 honored to have had some really great chat time with the marvelous chris packham i've described him as a hero of mine before and i think you'll hear why today what a remarkable human being Utterly incredible, completely humbled. We're going long with Chris Packham today because obviously we can only play certain amount of content on the radio show because we don't have, you know, hours and hours and hours of airtime. We can always go longer here on the podcast. We're also going longer with the wonderful Sean Williamson, Barry from EastEnders, and he was in all the Ricky Gervais stuff. What a lovely man. What a funny, insightful, clever, and just utterly charming man. Really happy to be able to share some time with him as well. I hope you'll enjoy that. Then from Love Island, we've got Shauna Phillips, who was good fun and lots of energy. And then a bonus special that you won't have heard anywhere else, exclusive to the Andy J podcast. Ah, I've said it again. It's the incredible, sensational musician, MNEK. He had, what, number one this year for three months, four months? I don't know, just absolute hit maker. Worked with the likes of Kylie and Beyonce and wow, fabulous. Lots of fun. That's your show. Thank you so much for your company. I'd love it if you could subscribe, tell your friends, and especially now we've got this whole new brand name thing and a photograph of me. Oh, cringe. Then please do um, spread the word because we'd love, love as many people to be hearing these conversations as possible and talking about them. And of course, the back catalogue of conversations that we have includes some really incredible brilliant chats with some amazing people so i'd love you to delve into our archive of chats as well and next week by the way a real real biggie for you but we'll tell you about that in seven days thank you driven with andy J. It's Driven here on Talk Radio, the show that talks to celebrities and achievers about what drives them. And I must tell you, now there's a bucket list moment for me. Before we started this show many, many moons ago, I sat down with the pro producer and I said, look, I've got five people I'd really, really, really love to interview. And right now, I've been given that opportunity with one of them. He's a wildlife expert, a TV presenter, a photographer, an author, a conservationist, a campaigner, a filmmaker, and a man I'm absolutely delighted to have on the phone. It is the wonderful Chris Packham. Chris, how are you doing? 
I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, very well. Enjoying this autumn season. And uh, at the moment, I'm looking out and there's still plenty of yellow, golden, green leaves on the trees. It's looking very picturesque. So although it's not as warm as it might be in spring and summertime, there's still plenty to see wildlife-wise. And being out in the woods is lifting my spirits no end. We are so lucky, aren't we? I mean, it's one of the things my grandfather used to say to me about the best thing about Great Britain was the weather because of all the incredible seasons that we have access to. Yeah, I imagine if we lived in the tropics, it would just be always hot, sunny and sweaty. Um, but we do have our cool temperate climate, which means we have this great seasonality. Um, and it's hard to pick a favourite season, to be quite honest with you. I think autumn tops my list because it is so dynamic. We've got things leaving the UK, vast numbers of things arriving, of course, from further north, certainly in terms of wading birds, wildfowl, geese, etc. Um, but then it's, it's, it looks so beautiful um, when all of those leaves are on the trees. A time of bounty as well, lots of fruits, conkers, sweet chestnuts. I've just been scuffing around looking at those. Um, acorns, of course. So it's it's a very you know exciting time of the year. And if it's sometimes a little bit grey and a little bit drizzly, put your coat on, get your wellies on and get out there. Absolutely. Chris, you're someone that I picture as just constantly being outside, you know, far more time outdoors than, than inside. Is my imagination correct? It is, I suppose. Because since I've been up this morning, I was firstly out in the garden um, trying to sort a few catastrophes out and um, gardening catastrophes because my fingers are not too green and 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 then I've been out now just walking the uh, the dogs in the woods for an hour and a half mooching around as they've been pooching around you know just looking for little things and it's a it's a great way of sort of I mean I've got a lot of work to do today but that's going to help me with my work now I feel a lot more sort of settled and content now I've been for a healthy stroll in the in the autumn air. Well it's I mean it's so kind of pointed that you bring up this this access to the outdoors and and how it helps you because of course you have a new book out which i think is is a really special book it's called back to nature how to love life and save it and you've written it with your your stepdaughter uh, megan mccubbin and it's I'm, i must say chris I, i've i've had the book for a few hours now and i've had a chance to kind of dive into it and it is such a, a gripping read because you cover so many different subjects. You talk about things that are incredibly personal to you. You also obviously reference a lot of things about what we're doing to, to nature and how we can and should be improving things. It's a remarkable, it's a remarkable right. And it was a product of lockdown. Very much so. Yeah, Megs and I sat down. We started a, a thing called the Self-Isolating Bird Club, which was a, basically a social media broadcasting uh, platform that we developed. So we were putting out initially an hour of, well, by the end of it, you could almost call it TV. I mean, we had guests from overseas. We had films being made by young British filmmakers who were playing things in. We had interviews with people. Um, and then we switched to that to once a week, and we wondered what we were going to do with the other six days. So we decided to write a book. And it was very much prompted by our experience of, of the first lockdown when we were you know, in in the new forest. Uh, you know, Like so many other people, we were going out just once a week to shop and, and look after my elderly father and Megan's grandparents, you know, and then the rest of the time we were left to our own devices. So we we turned to the keyboards and, and Megs has, has researched and written a lot of sort of scientific gems, those sorts of things that you're going to love to know because they are astonishing in terms of, you know, new scientific discoveries about animals. I, I've written about, you know, the, the benefits of being in, in the natural environment in terms of physical and mental health. But as you rightly point out, you know, I, I feel, and so does Megs, that that you know, nature gave to us in that lockdown. So many people took to social media, posting pictures of the animals which they were, you know, enjoying the plants which they were identifying and birdsong that they were listening to. 
And, and I just felt that, yeah, but we mustn't forget that we've got to give something back too. So there are a number of case studies in the book looking at things where I think people might have a false perception of how well nature's doing. And it's really important that we take a clearer view of it and do everything we can collectively to, to make sure it, it, it's retained and continues to be healthy and, and prosperous itself. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and you're so right. You know, there's there's so many things we can and should be doing. And there's things that have really kind of stood out for me in the book so far, which I'd love to come on to. And I just wanted to point out as well, you, you've sort of mentioned that Megan kind of brings out these amazing scientific discoveries and you have a more, if you, if you mind, don't mind me saying so, you have a more sort of human and, and real approach to it, you know, your own personal feelings to it. I mean, some of the things that, that Megan's highlighted that have really stood out for me are what happens to birds when they're sleeping and the, the sexual reproductive, reproductive nature of worms and things. I mean, it's terrific stuff that I'd never, never thought of before. But one of the things that, that you've just sort of touched on there is the mental health benefits to connecting with nature. And, and if you don't mind, I'd like to read a, a little quote from the book that, that clearly you'd written which really struck a chord with me, which says, my access to nature unwittingly offered, offered saved my life. I spent a lot of time crying in dark woods and rainy fields, but nature and wildlife soaked up those tears and sometimes even put a smile on my face. I mean, goodness me, Chris, that's, uh, that's uh, such, a, such a powerful statement. Well, as a, as a young person and, and through to my sort of mid-twenties, I, I was struggling, you know, to, to fit in with the world really and it, and it was a very difficult time socially and, and mentally and, and I did become very seriously depressed um, But and I thought that I was just going out into the woods and the fields because that's where the things that fascinated me most lived and I'm sure and they, still, and they do of course but, but I was also retrospectively going there to clear my head and to find some space where I felt comfortable and I didn't feel oppressed or repressed or depressed and, and you know and, and I could go out and within minutes sometimes, you know, just leave the rest of that world behind and, and enter another one, which was, you know, almost instantaneously joyous and uplifting. And, you know, and I, I still, like so many other people, get a thrill, you know, by sort of encountering nature firsthand. It doesn't have to be big and glamorous. It can, you know, be as simple as the, the colour of a leaf, you know, or, mm. or, or, the, or, or the shape of a, a footprint left in the mud. You know, these things can, can genuinely excite us. And, and we know now, of course, that, you know, that a lot of scientific research has been done as to how, you know, our interaction with nature is, is positive to us. And there is no ambiguity about it. We know that it improves physiologically, neurologically, our, you know, our, our health. And, and we've also seen it measured that people who spend time, particularly young people, when they're in nature, their learning capacity is enhanced, their memory is enhanced, their, you know, so many aspects of their lives are, are enhanced by being in that green space. And, and I think that as we move in, you know, to a winter where there are going to be restrictions because of COVID, I think we must all remember what we did in the spring. And that was, you know, we took our daily exercise. So many people did, took that in parks and, and, and footpaths along canals, wherever they had access to. And they had that little bit more extra time. And, and they, they actually, you know, looked at things they'd seen for a long time and they listened to things that they'd heard for a long time, you know. And, and that's the difference. You know, you, you so often you... You walk past things. You sometimes take them for granted. But in that period where we had that extra time forced upon us, as mm -hmm. it were, people did just sort of think, oh, well, well, I've heard that song at this bus stop for years. Like, well, what is it? And, and they, they stopped to figure out it was a blackbird. And then they engaged with it. And, they, and the beauty of it, the simple beauty of a blackbird song at a bus stop was enough to punch through and put a smile on their face and motivate them to, to get really excited about it on Twitter or Facebook. And, 
and, th- and there's a clear message there. That is, you know, nature's free. It's all around us. You don't have to be in the countryside. You can be in a city. Our cities, you know, Manchester, Liverpool, London, Glasgow, they've all got lots of parks and green spaces, and there's lots of stuff living there, some of the most exciting animals in the UK, in fact. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the themes very clearly in the book is that lockdown has helped us to reconnect and reprioritise. But but Chris, you, you sort of go very far to say, you know, it's not enough just to have a newfound appreciation for it. It's not enough just to be going, oh, yeah, I can recognise the birds now and I'm enjoying, you know, smelling the flowers. We have to do more, don't we? We do. I mean, I, I, I for a long time, people have said they care about nature, they care about the environment, they care about you know, having a sustainable future for our own species on this planet, but they haven't done anything about it. And I think we all used to imagine that they, that, you know, the magic they out there, whether that was the environmental NGOs, charities, or whether it was the government, um, that they would get on and fix it. But very sadly, as all the data shows, you know, with our catastrophic declines in habitats and species, they haven't fixed it. Um, and now they need some assistance, and we're the best people to do it. You know, if we love it, then we don't want to lose it. So we have to stand up and, and take you know, more action. And there is a, an undoubted and you know plea in the book for people to become a little bit more activist. And activist doesn't mean going to demonstrations and, and waving placards. Activism is doing something positive in your space. And that can be cutting a hole in your fence to let a hedgehog through. It can be feeding the birds. That's a, a, a form of activism. But we also do need to think about lobbying our leaders and those environmental NGOs to take more dramatic action because things are tough in the natural world, you know, and, we, and, and we're constantly reminded of that. And, and now so many more people have realized its, its value in, in its own sense and, and to them. And I'm hoping that they will, you know, when the time comes, sign that petition and complain about that tree being cut down and the loss of their allotment or whatever it happens to be, because they would have realized that that's intrinsically important when it comes to the quality of their life. Yes, absolutely. If there is one positive to come from lockdown, then hopefully it, it is that there will be a bigger swell of people prioritising these things. One of the things that you say we can do if we own a lawn, for example, and I think this is a great tip, is to get a, a wildflower patch instead of grass. You know, you say lawns are boring. That's one of your, your statements. Yeah, well, just a monoculture of grass that you continually you know, mow to prevent it from reproducing is, is a very bizarre habit when you think about it. And we enjoy the diversity in nature. Why not enjoy that on your patch? And a lot of people's patch is, is a lawn. And I appreciate that, you know, you may want to, the kids may work, want somewhere to kick a football and you may want somewhere to lay a towel and do some sunbathing or whatever else. So it's a question of getting the balance right. But if you have space and you can give a lawn over to a wildflower patch, then you'll see enormous riches as a, as a result. Firstly, the flowers, which are a lot more interesting than most grasses. And well, grass flowers are pretty cool, but not the ones that normally people have in their lawn. And, and, then, and then, of course, you've got all the insects that come to those, a myriad of insects, bees and, and, and flies and wasps and beetles. Um, and then all the things that in turn eat those. So all of the invertebrate predators, all of the spiders and the um, things that hunt them, and, and then the birds that come too. And and, and you begin to build a far richer community. And, of course, it's much easier to manage anyway. You have to cut it once a year. <laughs> That's um, it. Yeah, so, I mean, you can literally sit back in your deck chair on that part of the of the, uh, the grass that remains and, and enjoy that lawn and cut it once in September, leave it for a couple of weeks for the seeds to fall, and then rake it all out and put it on the compost heap. So it's, it seems to be a, 
a win-win. And, and it would be a win for nature too, because our gardens collectively represent a significant slice of the UK countryside, an area the size of Suffolk, you know, is, is covered by gardens. Mm. So if you imagine that we all did our own little bit, that would be a significant, you know, sort of, you know, private nature reserve, individually private nature reserve, wouldn't it? I think it would be fantastic, Chris. I mean, I've I've been convinced from from reading the book. I I immediately went right that section of our garden. That is, it's all in. We're going all in. That's going to be wild flowers and wild grass, and and there we are. And I, I said to my wife, and she was like, absolutely, one hundred percent. Let's do it. And I just hope that more people. And, and one of the things you say is, you know, it doesn't really matter how big a space you apportion to it, just something, and then maybe encourage your neighbours to do it too. And I think that's, that's a really good idea. Yeah, that's a key thing. I mean, once you've done it, you know, lean over the fence and. Like, Ask your neighbours to have a look at this and, and show them something interesting. You know, you know, pick pick a corn cobbler and give it to them and say, you know, wouldn't wouldn't that be a little bit more interesting than your than your green bit? Um, you know, and, and and then once you get a community involved like that, and there are, you know, I write about community conservation and its power and use in the book, and 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 outline some of the projects that I've been to around the UK recently, and and they are fantastic. They don't just you know do a good job for nature. They bring communities together. They get people sharing ideas and. And, and they, you know, they generate tolerance and understanding in a community, all of which is, is a positive benefit. And it can all be centered around, you know, a, a nature project, putting up bat boxes, running a bird box scheme, you know, renting some. In, in Scotland, there was a brilliant scheme we looked at where a local community in a couple of villages rented a few hectares of land from local farmers. And they planted it up with, you know, uh, wildflowers for insects in the summer and seeds for birds in the winter. And, you know, it was fantastic. Well, all the young and old alike, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, what their political persuasion, their age, their their, their colour or anything. They all just came together and mucked in. And, and, and it was great, you know, a great commonality was shared uh, as, as a sense of purpose. I absolutely love it, Chris. And, and so many of the themes in this book resonate so strongly with me. My sister's a, a psychologist for the NHS, and, and she's been doing a recent study about how people that suffer from trauma, mental health issues, PTSD, and so on and so forth, need to spend more time outside. And as such, they've actually discovered that you could you could actually take people just to a garden to spend some time just gardening, not talking about their concerns or their lives or their worries, just gardening. And the benefits they would reap from that are huge. Yeah, huge. Just that contact with the soil. We know there are bacteria in soil which are a, a, a great asset to us. And we know that when we're in contact with soil, it, it, it can make us more content as a, as a result of that. Um, and those sorts of therapies are beginning to be more widely understood and thankfully more widely prescribed. And that, you know, the, the natural health service, as I call it, you know, is something that ought to be on every GP's list in terms of prescription. And of course, obviously, we need pharmaceuticals. We need drugs to treat mm. certain illnesses and disease. We're not pretending that this is an alternative therapy, but it is one which you can use in association with all of those. And it's certainly capable of changing people's minds and making them feel better. And we, as I say, we see that in, in, in a great spectrum of society. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and you've benefited from it yourself, as we've, as we've discussed, and without even realising in the early days. Uh, Chris, what's your main take home that you want from people to take when they read this book? Is it, is it that they, you want them to get active? Is it that you want them to have a greater appreciation? Is it that you want them to start lobbying people? You know, if, if, if people take one thing from the book, what would it be? I, I'd like people to, to learn to love life um, and all of life, not to be picky and choosy, and, and, and just like the blue tits on their feeders and, you know, and the squirrels in the park. But to realize that, you know, for life to work, it takes all sorts. 
it, it takes the you know the rats, the pigeons, the cockroaches, all of those things which we sometimes call pests. You know, it, it takes everything. And if people have an understanding that all life counts then they will become more tolerant of those things which normally they would try and exclude, like the slugs and the snails if you're a gardener. You know, you can get rid of those, and yeah, your lettuces might look a little bit better, but you won't have any song thrushes, and you won't have any hedgehogs, and you won't have any slow worms. And, and you know, and to, to lose the song of a song thrush, that beautiful liquid, um, you know, trilling that they produce early in the season when they're singing, that if you're lucky enough to have a garden and, and, and you rob yourself of that, that, that song simply because you... You know, you, you're intolerant of slugs and snails, then then yours is a tragic loss. And I, so I, I would like people to become more tolerant and, and, as I say, learn to love all life. That that would be the the takeout. That's a really important message, Chris. You're a man with with huge profile. You know, you've been on our TVs for as long as I can remember. I think I think the Really Wild Show started in 1986, if memory serves, which seems like a, a you know such a long time ago now. One of the things that I've always admired about you from from the very beginning is that you have always put your profile to very good use. You have always shone a light on things that are important. Is that because you see it as a duty because of your profile? Well, I mean, that's my mission. Um, I've developed that profile and I I have to use that as an asset when it comes to changing the world. I mean, you know, the world needs changing. I need to change people's minds. If you can't change people's minds, you'll you'll never change the world. And that's quite difficult because just like you and I, you know, we're not, we're not very good at changing our minds, the human species, but, but we need to do that. And I think that, you know, if I have some small platform, um, then I do have a duty to, 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 to exercise my voice for creative change and, and positive uh, good, because otherwise, what's the point? You know, what, what is the point? I, for me, it's not a self-indulgent thing where I get paid to enjoy wildlife and wax lyrical on the TV and, 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 you know, and formally, um, you know, travel the world to, to see it. And um, that would be entirely selfish. What motivates me to want to do that in the first place is to make that world a better place for that wildlife. So, you know, the campaigning, which I do alongside everything else, is, is implicitly important. There's, there's no doubt about that. I, I, there's no, there's not, I can't even countenance the idea of not doing it mm. um, for the simple reason that, you know, I have to sleep at night. Uh, and I'm 59 years old. I'm running out of time to to make that difference. So I'm working ever harder, if, uh, as hard as I possibly can, in fact, to, to try and get people to change their ways and make the world a better place for wildlife and for humans too. You're a force for good, Chris. And you just said you're 59. I, I, I knew this because obviously I researched talking to you. When I when I read that, I don't believe it. I mean, you, you look at least 30 years younger. How are you managing that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, it, I'd like to say it was my clean living, um, <laughs> but I suppose it, 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 one aspect of it that, that is, it has been permanently clean is the fact that I do constantly exercise outside. Maybe it's that. Uh, but it's got to come down to good genes. My father, who's 87, looks a little younger than his 87 years as well, so I probably have him and my mother to thank for that. But anyway, I, I, you, know, you, if you need to get a bit closer. I can, I can assure you there are plenty of grey hairs and wrinkles present. <laughs> even but even you must occasionally look at yourself in the mirror and go yeah you know for 59 i'm doing very well for myself i, I try to avoid the mirror to be honest <laughs> with you. Sh- shaving shaving is hard enough work and i concentrate on my beard line when i'm doing that i, I you know I, i'm not a fan of chris packham i'm you know I, I ultimately my mission is to be a fan of what chris chris packham has helped achieve when it comes to conservation and environmental care and and, and at this point, I'm very keen to engage with as many and, and mentor as many young 
environmentalists and uh, conservationists too because they've got some brilliant ideas there's some very gifted young people out there and i think we you know we should give them more space and let them take their risks and and, and exercise their imagination when it comes to to, to to doing good things because you know they they are some so much better at it than than us old guys and you know, if we just extend a little bit of trust to them, they can do such good things. And that's what I spend quite a bit of my time now is working with younger people to ensure that, you know, when 59 becomes 79 and perhaps doesn't make 89, that there's going to be young people there who have picked up the baton and, and will be running faster and harder and, and doing more good than I've been able to do. Well, bless you for that. Do, do you have confidence that the youth of today will be able to transform things for us? I do, yeah, I do, and I, and I, that confidence has, has grown immeasurably in the last couple of years with the youth climate strikes, um, and and the way that young people are realising that they, you know, if they want a healthy world to live in, they're going to help, you know, have to instigate change, and and I, in a way, I entirely sympathise with the way that they're frustrated and angry with our generations who have, to a great extent, failed them. Mm-hmm. So to see them standing up to be counted is, is, is heartening from my point of view. And if I bet, you know, I, I spend quite a bit of my time now offering my platform to young people. I'm a, I'm a bit devious. I, you know, I'll say to someone, yes, I'll come and give you a, a talk. And I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, but who is more important? Whose voice is more important here? Is it my voice, which you've heard before? Or is it the voice of this young person that's struggling to be heard? So I walk out on the stage and say to everyone, you know, you've got a surprise coming because <laughs> I'm going to be joining you in the audience. And, um, and you're going to be listening to this young person. Brilliant. And obviously under COVID, we, there's been restrictions there, but the Self-Isolating Bird Club, you know, one of our first, you know, you know sort of things that we brought in as a sort of a, as a mantra was that we would, you know, give, give as many young people a voice on that program as possible. And there's people like Kabir Call, who's a young man in London, you know, he, he first came on to SIBC and, and now he's presented a film for Autumn Watch. You know, which is fantastic, and you know, there are, he's one of a number of, of people that I I, I I like to think that we're helping along. You know, you're so good at sharing the spotlight, Chris. It's one of the things that I've always been impressed with, and you always acknowledge the crew and the people that have been on the journey with you. You know, which is, I mean, it's 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 like a you know, it's like the lead singer in a band making sure that the bassist gets his solo. You know, I, I think that's so impressive. Sorry to go musical on you there, a bit random. Um, the show's called Driven, Chris. It's, it's about what drives people, what gets them up in the morning, what makes them do remarkable things and, and try and make a difference in the world. Can I ask, what, what drives you? I suppose, you know, I'm, I'm intolerant of injustice. And when I see injustice wrought upon the natural world, then I, I, I must fight back against it. You know, I, I, I cannot just, I cannot rest. Um, a long time ago, I realized that I was an angry young man and I needed to use that anger creatively. Anger is an expensive emotion. You know, it can make you say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing. So you've got to get a, a handle on it. There's nothing wrong with being angry so long as you've learned to turn that, you know, that energy into something positive rather than negative. And I still get angry, probably angrier than ever, to be quite honest with you. But, you know, now, I, you know, for me, I'm, I'm constantly looking for means of generating to you know solutions to a problem that I that, that we identify, and you know and encouraging young people as we've just said to to stand up and be counted is part and parcel of that solution because you know I can't do the job forever and I, you know and, and we need more voices and we need voices with different ideas and and better ideas so you know but I think that's the that is the key I just I cannot stand back when I see injustice whether it's animal welfare environmental destruction you know ignorance 
you know, in terms of you know political decision making when it comes to making sure that we've we've got a healthy planet to stand on, or, or even simple things to you know close to me where people just want to cut some trees down for you know effectively no reason because mm. they're not thinking around a solution. And and and, and on, on every level, I um I don't get much sleep because I'm constantly doing stuff to try and try and prevent and help help this help this cause forward. Well, I'd say it's a life very well served so far, Chris. Are you aware of just how many people and how many lives you've changed and how many people are impressed with you? Because, you know, to me, I couldn't be more impressed. I think you're absolutely fantastic and the world needs more people like you. Well, it's very kind, kind of you to say. Um, I don't think my job will ever be done. I think, you know, my, my duty is to just carry on. And, you know, for me, winning is not giving up. It's not about ever getting a cup or a prize. It's, winning is about never stopping. It's about always carrying on and my mission is just to carry on to the end. And, and if I've been able to inspire people um, and, and change their minds, basically, then hopefully they'll help me change the world to make it a better place for wildlife and the environment and, and the human species too. And I guess that, that will be, that'll be okay. Yeah, well, indeed. Well, certainly sign me up, Chris. It's, it's you know, everything you've done in your career has, has led in the same direction and it's about doing good and highlighting awareness and, and just trying to get people to be as aware and in touch with nature as possible. And, and the book is a great triumph, a testament to that, Back to Nature, How to Love Life and Save It. And, and I have to say, I've absolutely loved our conversation, Chris. I, I really, I can't thank you enough. No, not at all. Thank you. Um, and and it's, it's, it's great to be able to share your, you know, your listeners' ears with the things that we've been talking about because, you know, I, I have that concern that, you know, you and I and everyone listening, you know, in our hearts, we, we know that we've got to do the right thing. And, of course, the sooner we do it, the better for us and for our children and grandchildren as well. And, and we need to make sure that everyone understands that now that we, we've reached a critical point, you know, we're making a last stand for some species. And, and, and we know that the clock is ticking when it comes to our environment. So stop caring, start acting is, is the message. So thank you for the opportunity to spread those simple words. Stop caring, start acting. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, listen, Chris, if we can ever help in any way, shape or form, you'll always have a platform here. So um, really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Driven with Andy J. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome my next guest, a man for whom I have done something that I don't do for anyone else. I have brought along some pre-prepared questions, although these aren't your normal interview questions. These are because my next guest has just written a book called A Matter of Fact. We know him for many different reasons. The obvious one is EastEnders, which we'll get onto shortly, of course, but I'm elated to welcome Sean Williamson. How are you doing, Sean? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm very nervous about these questions now. Well, I have I have poured through your book. I've been ambushed, everybody. Didn't know about this. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I, well, I thought to myself, you know, you you are so good with quizzing. Like, it has, it's kind of, you've almost redefined yourself as this quiz legend. And I just thought, well, so my dad is an amateur quiz master. Oh, he does every year. He does um, he does a, qu a quiz to raise money for leukemia research. Lovely. He's been doing it since as long as I've been alive. Right. So I just said to him the other day, I said, I've got, I've got Sean Williams. And he, I saw him on Mastermind and various <laughs> other things. Every single one you've won, Pointless and Mastermind and, and the, the Chase. I mean, you've won the lot. The thing is. Uh, most celebs, as it were, go on these shows just to be seen and have a bit of a crack and nick a few quid. You know? Right, okay. I'm the only saddo who wants to win. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, so so yeah, I I, I love going on the, on the celeb versions. Yeah, it's, it's always great fun, and Pointless is my favourite. Yeah. So I thought it would be fun just to have a few. I basically said to him, look. Throw together some of your favourite questions. They don't have to be super hard. There's nothing you won't have heard before. But I just thought as a bit of, just in between our chatting, I might throw a few questions in your I'm direction. up for it. Like, shall I, shall I give you a starter? Okay, give me a starter. All right. Just to get the All old right. grey matter going. Just to get the, like, I'm going to start with an easy one. Okay. okay. So George Perrick's novel, Avoid, was published in English in 1969. Do you know what I'm going to ask you? What's its unique characteristic? Uh... This is normally something like it, it, it was only printed in Esperanto or uh, he doesn't use the word the. It's wonderful. These are good guesses, but it's the it doesn't have the letter E in it. Oh, OK. All right. So yeah, there that's, you go. That's so so we're, I'm going to give you eight questions. Uh, a nice okay, gentle starter there, folks. <laughs> I thought that was the easy one as well. <laughs> ah, I was no. like, he's bound to know this. Because like, like I had to check because your book is so full of questions. Yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful. Well, let's talk about it. Right, let's let's get this chat because I, I want to know about the book because okay. I've I've now read it. It's a lovely memoir of the last twelve months of your quizzing life, but it also harks back to your you, you managed to tell the story of lots of your life yeah. within you know pub question yeah in the you know having various different quizzes etc cetera, etc cetera. this great ambition to be a a quizzing grandmaster yeah so what happened was I, uh, ever since my parents you know I used to love a bit of wine women in song. And then my parents gave me Trivial Pursuit on my, on my uh, I think it was Christmas 86, and then I discovered my inner anorak. And uh, I just became this sort of quiz fiend. And I joined local pub quiz teams, and I joined a very good one called the Unicorn in Canterbury. We won everything several years on the trot. And then when EastEnders came along, uh, I got a bit too busy, and my children were young at the time, a young family. So that sort of went, went, went by the by, really. Um, and then... Like we said, I managed to quiz through my association, association with EastEnders. I got into um, Celebrity Mastermind, subject Richard Burton, managed to win that. Yep. I was on there with um, uh, David Blunkett. Yes, I remember. What a lovely man. Harry Potter is subject. Yes. And I had to help Brilliant. him to the seat because there there's a sharp drop in front of the seat and they didn't trust his dog. So oh, wow. uh, Sadie or Lucy, whoever it was at the time. So I had to help him to the seat. I was more nervous about that than the quiz. <laughs> so that helped settle my nerves, really. That's and then brilliant. Anthony Warrell Thompson turned to me. We were just in, in a gap in the film and he went, I'm Richard Burton's godson. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. His dad was at the RSC in the 50s. Wow. So basically, I did all, did all those. Pointless is my favourite. I managed to win it four times, three jackpots. But then um, early last year, I, I got a job with Al Murray called The Great British Pub Quiz. Yeah. Okay, it was on television. It was on Discovery Channel. And I was his brainy barman. So I'd take on one of each team in a round called Beat the Barman. So the subject might be African country. So you'd start off? Cape Verde. Okay. Yeah, very good. Morocco. <laughs> oh, Nigeria. And then we keep going until someone either bottled it or, or, or so run out of answers. Fancy to Cape Verde's good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you frightened me there. You said panic look in my eyes. Um, so I let myself down badly on one program because I hadn't prepared properly about the uh, uh, periodic table. Okay. And then a couple of weeks later, I was in my local pub and the landlord, Fred, he always runs his questions past me. If he's done a quiz I haven't been able to attend, he'll run and pass me on a quiet Monday lunchtime. And he said to me, the ultimate question, easiest question ever, who is the only British artiste to have had top 10 hits in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and noughties? Cliff Richard. And I couldn't think of it. And I thought, okay, what is it? Uh, uh, am I getting old? Do I drink too much? So, right, let's have a year where I just immerse myself at the highest echelon of quizzing in the country, which is the Grand Prix League. First Saturday of every month, everyone meets up in different venues. 
at 11.30, they all turn over uh, a question sheet. It's just like a school exam. Everyone at that moment is turning over exactly the same sheet. Yeah. And it phones off. Finishes, it's all in silence. Oh, yeah, in total silence. Finishes wow. at 1 o'clock, phones back on again, and you can breathe. Uh, and it, all the chasers do it, all the eggheads and, and other people you've never heard of who are brilliant. So, yeah, I, I thought I'll, I'll immerse myself into that world. So when you're in this hall, when you decide to do this, I've got to ask about the sort of people that are doing this. Obviously, everyone's everyone's got a unique passion. You know, this is this is a curious way. But I, I, I mean, does everyone look a bit nerdy? Is everyone like, have you got some some of the cool kids? Is that they're kind of owning one corner? Do they sit at the back? How does it work? I, I, I know what you mean. There, there, there is something that's that's quite um, niche about it. Yeah. And I was very careful in the book to not because I've got a genuine passion and I really like the people. Yes, you, so and that's so clear. So it wasn't like someone who might infiltrate a bell ringer society or a Morris dancer society and then just really slant it to poke fun at them afterwards. You yeah. know, They have this passion, all right? Now, maybe it was uh, the SWAT at school, yeah. all right? I won't yeah. use the N-word. You're, you're not getting me on that. <laughs> maybe they were the SWATs at school, but they're very clever people. And uh, yet they're, they're very driven. I always said at the end of the book, when you know I haven't quite got as high as I wanted to, do. I, I, I did all right. I did I did fine. I, I was proud of what I did, but I sort of say it's my passion and their obsession. Yeah, that's an interesting way of doing it. And what's and what is so clear throughout the book, and my goodness, the number of facts. I mean, it's it's not you're not going to drift off to this book. You know, you're, you're going <laughs> to concentrate to kind of because you want to consume as much of it as possible. But what is clear is is that. This really means a lot to you. It's, it's not like your, I know you, you kind of describe it, your passion and their obsession, but you, you really go for it for that. Year, yeah, yeah, because it, it, it is. It, it is something that I love. So it wasn't just, well, I need to write a book, you know, to earn a few quid. So I'll write it about, I don't know, quizzing and I'll just have a go at it. Yeah. You know, it was a, it was a passion anyway. Yeah. Uh, um, and I, I, knew, uh, I knew a lot of the people from these quiz shows and that people like Kevin and Pat from the Eggheads and Anne and Paul Simmer from, from The Chase. But there were some of the other people that I interview on purpose, David Stainer and Ian Bailey, who people won't have heard of. Yeah. But they've achieved great things in the world of quizzing. I wanted to interview uh, Kevin just before uh, the the um, the book ends, to, 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 when I when I attempt the world championships again. But lockdown put pay to that, unfortunately. So that'll, that'll have to be in the paperback. Can I ask about the reward for these things? Because you know. For example, bingo. Okay, I'm not likening it, but I am. <laughs> I am liking it to bingo in a sense because I'm seeing these people in a hall together. Yeah. You go play bingo because it's socialising, because it's relaxing, because it's fun, but also because you might win a few quid. Yeah. So the super objective to becoming a genius quizzer, you don't just want to break the 100 barrier, do you, in no. the points, which is no. obviously what you focus on in the book, breaking yes. that 100 barrier. You, there's, some, there's some cash floating around as well, isn't there? Well, it, it depends. I mean, I mean, I was sounded out to be a chaser, and then I, I think they thought, well, it, it'd just be wrong. It'd upset the balance, and I think they were right to not to not pursue okay. it. Okay. Um, th th there is. I mean, I mean, they don't. Th there's only money in it if you get picked to then be one of these eggheads or, or, or chasers. You don't win anything on the day, um, on on a Grand Prix day. It's purely about uh, pride. It's about your personal standing in the community. Right. You know, you want to be respected in the community if, if, yeah. if you're doing something. I like to think I was earning that towards the end because there is this thing, oh, some bloke from EastEnders, you know, <laughs> dipping into our world. But I like to think in the, in the end, and a lot, of, a lot of the quizzes have read the book and said, we really enjoyed this and you've really, you know, um, uh, done a credit to the, to the world of quizzing. And that means more to me than anything. Yeah. But I soon learned I was never going to beat Pat Gibson, you know, Kevin Ashman, Anne Hegarty. I was never going to beat these people. Uh, and I never will, I don't think. But for me, it was just a personal battle so that all the time I'm trying to do better than the last Grand Prix. Right. The very first one I did, I was 137th. 
134th out of 177, and towards the end I was 59th out of 200. It was all going in the right direction. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So if you keep going, I mean, the trajectory is going in the right way, isn't it? I think if, if I literally uh, only quizzed, because last year was also one of the busiest w w years of my life regarding work as well. Right. So I've, I've put sort of some bits in there where I have to dive off and do exactly. bizarre things like adverts in the Ukraine and all that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I honestly think I might tickle the top 30, but the top 20 in particular, they're very special people. I say in the book, what's the difference between Lionel Messi and the centre forward of Crawley Town, right? They can both have the same uh, you know, uh, physique, they both have the same diet, but something magic happens between the brain and the foot. Right. You know? Right. And something magic happens in the brain of these quizzes. Yeah. Kevin Ashman's 60. He's at an age when everything should be going out the other side and he's still winning tournaments. So that's a bit special. Tell me something. If you get if you get a good score, if you get a good rep, because you say there's no there's no immediate financial benefit when you're doing the Grand Prix. No. However, right, the pub league. Okay, then you could do you could clean up, couldn't you? You could go pub to pub to pub, or are you banned from pubs? No, I'm rubbish at pub quizzes. What? Because you can go into a pub quiz with the best one in the world and think I'm I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna yeah I've, I've dedicated a year to my life to quiz at the top level. I must be the best quizzer in the room. Yeah. And then you've done pub quizzes, right? Yeah. It comes out. Here's a page of chocolate bars cut in half. Name them. That's true. Straight away, yeah. you're like, well, I'm stuffed. Yeah. Uh, see what I did there? Yeah, I do. Uh, and uh, another time, I'm really bad. The only time I get a bit stroppy in the book is there's always questions on video games. Yeah. The Marvel world. Yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. Fellowship of the Ring. You really don't like Simpsons. Star Wars. I've noticed this. I don't like any of that. But that doesn't mean it's any less of a thing than physics. Good luck to people. Yeah. But it always features, and I get really bitter because I never know it. That's not. A pro it's up to me to then go and look these things up and watch them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so uh, uh, that that that's the only time I, I I feel it's a bit swatty. But again, it's my sh it's my sh shortfalling. So back to your original point. If I'm in a pub quiz league and it says this round, it's a music round. They're all themes to science fiction films or television shows. Yes, correct. I'm stuffed. Yeah. So yeah. pub quizzes are what they are. They as, as well they should be fun quizzes. Yeah. Okay. No, that's fair enough. Okay. Fine. Because I because I just immediately thought, well, you'll be like. You'll be like a Darren Brown or whatever. You're not allowed in the casino. No. You know, you just. But clearly, you're allowed in a pub. But you're not. You're not up for it. I'm going to ask you another one. I feel like now's a good time. Now I knew that your Achilles heel was Star Wars, so I have actively avoided Star oh, Wars. Oh, thank you. There's no Star Wars in here. This one, I think you're going to know, because I just because based on the book, I wondered you might have even answered this one before. But that's cool. So Derek Jarman's film Sebastian. Yes. You're familiar with this? Yes. It's the only British film ever to be released in Britain with English subtitles. What language was it filmed? Latin. Yes, it was. <laughs> and I thought you'd know it. Yes. I nearly made that the first question, but I thought you'd get the joke. I wish you had. <laughs> so we're 50% so, we're, we're so far. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Well, no, this is nice. Um, and obviously, we can't not talk about EastEnders, but I want to jump back beforehand. Okay, now I've heard it said, I might be wrong, but I've tried to specialist subject you, and I, I, I believe your ambition growing up was to be, and I quote, an alcoholic postman. So what happened was, we're going back to a time, and I, I don't want to offend anybody listening, but you, you have to remember, there was a time when teenage boys didn't sit in their room playing Fortnite, okay? <laughs> you wanted to get out, and you wanted to be like your dad, or whatever. Yeah. So I was at school, and I just wanted to, to join my dad and his chums at the post office, because what happened was, there's a, there, there was, I can't talk, I haven't, I haven't worked this since 1984, but there was a massive drinking culture at lunchtime because you get up at four o'clock in the morning yeah. and when you finish at midday-ish, you're as thirsty as a bank worker finishing work at five o'clock. Right. So there's nothing untoward really of having a few pints at lunchtime. 
And of course, it's not just that, it's an acceptance into an adult world. You know, I say a world yeah. of men, but yeah. I better say an adult world, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, so it's all about acceptance into an adult world. I, should, I won't say a world of men, an adult world, okay? So it's not just the drink, it's being able to go in the pub, you've got your uniform on. It doesn't say that you're a junior postman or a telegram boy. You know, you're a working man, you've got a badge, the landlord hasn't got a problem. You're, in, you're only 16, yes, he doesn't course. really know that. Long yeah. as you don't look 16, yeah. here's a pint. You're in there, there's Dean Martin on the jukebox, there's busty secretaries on their lunch break, you know. People who drink at lunchtime are either, they've either got life sussed or they're on the boulevard of broken dreams. And for a while, I, 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 I thought, yeah, I've got life sussed. There's nothing quite so decadent, be honest, as drinking at lunchtime. It's a lovely <laughs> thing about it, isn't it, you know. And, um, and you watch everyone else have to go back to work and all that. So it, it was the whole package that came with it. But what happened was, I found out I was quite good at it. I didn't get hangovers. I found out, unfortunately, I was good at drinking. Oh, right. So I'd have three or four, bearing in mind I was on a telegram boy's way, so I'd have three or four at lunchtime, let's say three, and then I'd go out again with my mates at night, non-postman mates, and have another three or four. Okay. So at the age of 16, I was on at least six pints a day, at least. Yes. 17, 8, 9, 18, 12, without, without a shadow of a doubt. Really? Because Straight. that's I mean, just that's, what I did. I never got into smoking, drugs. I didn't gamble. It's just what I did. That was my thing. I don't know if uh, anyone listening over the age of 30, 30, 35 will remember the Sunday lunchtime swill. Okay. The pub only opened between 12 and 2. So you queued at the door at 12 o'clock. You got your name and down for the dartboard quickly. Yeah. If you got knocked off, you couldn't get on for another half an hour. And you had a drink every quarter of an hour. You'd have eight pints on a Sunday lunchtime. Right. You go home, have your roast, watch balls. I go to bed and I go out and even have another six. That's monster. This, is, this isn't boasting, but you understand it's, no, not, it's just what it, you did. It's not boasting. Looking back, it's like, what were you doing? I say in the book, my friends were moving on, getting engaged, getting their first cars. Yeah. And I'm just slumped in the corner of a bar thinking this is great to talk to these strangers, these fascinating strangers, yeah, for two hours, wasting two hours of my life talking to someone who, you know. So I, I do look back on it with, with some regret but I, and, and fondness. Yeah. I, I mean, you've, the thing I love is that you've had a number of very interesting and very different jobs. Like when we, when we think about you, we don't, it's like the reinvention with the quizzing. You know, you've known it forever that you love quizzing, but we haven't really been aware of it until you started winning all the celebrity circuit and so on and so forth. You know, you were for a long time, you were Barry from EastEnders, something that you reinforced courtesy of Ricky Gervais, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But you've had a real life in, in a number of different ways. You know, I'm thinking, was it, was it Pontins? Yeah, it was a Pontins blue coat. Yeah. I which did some is... other things as well, which I left out of the book because I'll put them in the next one. I worked <laughs> on a summer camp in America for a couple of years. Well, I'd, I heard, I did hear an anecdote about how, and again, this may be a rumour because the, the internet has a lot of interesting stories about you that may or may not be true. <laughs> I'm going to say this delicately, mindful that it might, <laughs> might be chopped. Uh, you once in America, you once went... Um, Hitchhiking, yes, and uh, and and we're offered a, a, a bit of a time with the driver. What time does this show go out? Uh, well, let's let's go late. Let's pretend it's late. So myself and my friend uh, Andy, uh, we, we we worked <laughs> this, on. The, hang on, this is going to be true, right? The thing I've read yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we worked on this this summer camp in in uh, Pennsylvania, which was amazing. We were there for six seven weeks. It was uh, for Jewish children. So it was kosher. So it was a great introduction to another uh, uh, religion. Yeah. So it was all, all the food was kosher, and we get to learn about obviously the religious observances. Fascinating stuff, and the camp was a wonderful place. Uh, I, I was a counsellor, which isn't what it sounds like these days. So you slept in the same bunk as the child, me, me and my mate Andy, and you got them to the different teaching areas okay. during the day. 
basically you're responsible for keeping them alive during the day. Simple as that. Right. You got them up, you made sure they showered, dressed, you got them to breakfast, you got them to the teaching areas, so on and so forth. Okay. So at the end, we were great fans of Jack Kerouac on the road. So we said, <laughs> let's recreate Jack Kerouac's journey from New York to New Orleans, Hitchin. So we started out and we got a few rides early on. It wasn't easy. So I resorted to like wearing, I was quite fit at the time. I was, you know, in, in every sense of the word. I wasn't a bad looking lad then. People will find that funny at home. So I'm there in my little Union Jack shorts because that got us a few lifts. You're, you're from England. Brilliant. Do you know Mrs. Smith from London? Um, the answer is always yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah she's a lovely lady. Uh, so we got a, a few rides. Uh, a car, cars will often veer off the road to try and run us over. The further south you get, it gets a little bit wilder, right? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not even a fan. I think most Americans would agree with me. It gets a little bit wilder. Okay. As soon as you cross the Mason-Dixon line, uh, it gets fun. So uh, when you get deep into Virginia and places like that and Tennessee, yeah, it gets real fun. So you get oh, people wow. veering off onto the hard shoulder to try and run you over and Jeez. things like that. Um, so this rather large gentleman, I don't know if anyone remembers Dukes of Hazard. Um, of course, Daisy Duke. Well, he looked like Boss Hogg. He had a big, big white suit on. And a white hat. Right? <laughs> what, was proper Stetson? Yeah. Brilliant. So, so he pulled over. He went, you, you guys fancy a lift? I went, yes, please. Yeah, it was freezing. So anyway, we're going along. He went, I, I like your country up in Oxford. <laughs> went, yeah. I thought, clearly not to the uni. Um, <laughs> uh, and so on and so forth. And then we're driving along. And Andy's in the front, front of him. And I'm sitting behind him, behind the driver. And I just see Andy go, some commotion on his lap. What's going on? Then he did it again. And he went, stop it, right? Stop it. <laughs> I went, you're right. He said, no, he's, he's trying to touch me. <laughs> I went, everything all right? He went, you want your dick sucked? <laughs> I went, I'm, I'm all right, Andy. No, 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 we're fine, thank you. Please <laughs> just drop you off straight away. Well, no, no, no. Then he started driving at about 100 mile an hour. So I, oh, I'm, no. I'm, you know, so I'm thinking, right, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to get him in a headlock or something. I'm going to yeah. crash the car or something. But in the end, he let he let us out, um, and he just drove around this roundabout screaming at us until, luckily, oh, no. a very brave woman gave us another lift. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. Did she make a similar offer, or is that just no, a one-time thing? No, unfortunately not. Unfortunately <laughs> not. Uh, um, so yeah, that was the. Uh, so there, we unfortunately we had to turn him down on that one. Wow. And then we got to uh, Los Angeles in a very dishevelled state, and. Um, had two wonderful weeks there, really, yes. Yeah, so. Amazing. Mm. Now, how far away from that? It's, it's amazing what you can find out about you when you, de when you delve deep enough. You were also in the Navy. Yes, I oh, was. Hang on, I should ask you another question okay. before we do it, shouldn't I? Because otherwise, yeah. I can't start a theme and not carry on with it. Wouldn't it be cool if this was a naval question? This isn't just thrown together, this show. Oh, no, it's, I mean, actually, right now, this is, so the show is called Driven. Yeah. So I don't want to give anything away now, but in, in 1903, Earl Russell queued all night to get the first ever what? Well, that's a choice of two. That's a driving license or, or, or a license plate. Yeah, I'll give that to you. It was a Dri license plate. Not driving, but yeah, license it's plate. a license plate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I sort of felt like I gave it away by reminding you the show was called Driven. But <laughs> so because of that, I'm going to ask you this one as well. Okay. What did Nostradamus accurately predict would happen on the second of July, 1566? On the 2nd of July, 1566, uh, ooh, that's during the reign of Elizabeth I, not the Armada. No, his own death. 
Oh, well. He predicted Spook, his own death, guy. and he was right. Yeah. Okay, so we're yeah, still, we, we're we still believe that. We said he just top himself. <laughs> he might have just gone. Do you know what? He's like, no one believes me. Everyone <laughs> thinks I'm a failure. So he just yeah. took an overdose <laughs> of, an, of an untraceable poison. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was he was brilliant at Nostradamus. Yeah. But then he, he's dead, dead. What's the point? Nailed it. What he might have been alive and hated. <laughs> he's got a few things right since though, as well. Though, to mm. be fair, I think he made a lot of predictions. I'm going to make a thousand predictions now. We'll just see if two of them come. Some of them. Some of them will come up. So the name. So then, tell me about the name because this was an interesting one. You, I, I, if I remember rightly, again, you got stuck in a position where you were in the Navy when you didn't really want to be. So what happened was, so I'm doing all this drinking as a postman, but even I realised that my life is going nowhere. I've got to do something about it. So what can I do? So I thought, don't worry, don't worry about the cover. It's not a problem. So like I said, I was in the Navy, going nowhere, drinking too. So like I said, I was a, I was a postman, in, you know, drinking too much, life going nowhere. I thought, what can I do? I thought, all right, I'll, I'll think about the armed forces. I looked at the old marine and paratroop train and I thought, nah. So I thought I'd join the Navy. Uh, they, they get around, they're all sort of jolly chaps. So I, I, I thought I'd be able to become a helicopter pilot, you know, because the Falklands had just happened. Prince Andrew was a helicopter pilot, remember this? And he always had a bit of uh, fancy on his arm. Never sweated. No, never sweated. He was as cool as a cucumber. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to be like him then. Um, <laughs> so I thought I joined, I joined the Navy as a helicopter pilot. Right. Everything, passed everything, everything great. I, I got a place at uh, the Yeovilton uh, uh, or Coldrose, the, the training camp for them. Last thing was, was the medical, you're colorblind. So right, okay, what, what does that mean? Uh, it means you can't, um, but basically you can't do anything interesting. You can't kill anyone. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, you know, I'm only joking, but yeah, yeah, you can't yeah, do anything but... like weapons, helicopters. You can't. Um... Don't, no, don't worry about it. Honestly. So I'll just start the thing again. With the mics are really good. Okay. We, we go all over the place doing this. No one knows. Then they found out I was colorblind at the medical. Okay, the last thing they did was the medical. They found out I was colorblind. I said, well, what does that mean? It means you can't do anything remotely interesting. You can't fly helicopters, fire machine guns at people. You can't uh, stoke engines. You can't do uh, uh, load missiles. So I said, what can I do? You can be a, a, a storesman, a steward, which basically trains you to be a silver service waiter at a hotel, a, a cook or a writer. I said, what's a writer? They said, it's like a pay accountant, really, a secretary. Oh. So I thought, I'll, I'll be a cook. And then at the last minute, I said, no, I'll be a writer. I hated maths at school. Don't ask, don't ask me why. Don't ask me why I picked a writer. So I got in. Part one training was great. Firing guns, marching, you know. Yeah. Uh, all right, I, I wasn't very good at a lot of it, but it was interesting. Part two training was just like dismal. It was just like pay, pay accounts. And, uh, you know, and even then computers were coming. How many writers do you need on a ship now? Well, yeah. You know, you don't. You get yeah. paid by back transfer, don't you? So... I could sort of see where it was going, but because I was over 18, I'd signed on for seven years. I thought, I'm not doing seven years of this. So then it's, how do I get myself thrown out honourably? I'm not going to hate, hate, uh, prison, military prison Colchester. You just get oh, beasted. Right. So I looked at the options and I thought, you know, I'm just going to have to keep failing this same test. So I got back classed and I had back classed. It was easy for me to say. And I had to wait two weeks for the other guys to catch me up from, you know, so then, then I retook the exam, got a lower mark. Then, then they know you're up to something. Oh, do they? And then they're like, you're not going anywhere. We know what you're doing. We're going to break you. We're going to keep you in. Okay. Then I had to wait two weeks for the next class, got a lower mark. They said, we know what you're doing, Williamson. But in between, they tried their best blessing because I cost them a lot of money. Yeah. So they sent me to sea. I thought, great. But then the first morning, I was woken up at four in the morning. Uh, chef's gone ill. You're the cook. I said, I can't break. I, I can't do a boiled egg. You're in the kitchen. So I had to rustle up uh, breakfast for about 70 people. And we're out in the ocean and all, you know, all, yeah. all the, all the yeah, cupboards yeah. are flying open, all the pans yeah. are flying out. 
So the first person got a decent breakfast and the next two was all right and the last bit was just roadkill for 60 odd people <laughs> and everyone hated me. They sent me up a mountain to go climbing up a mountain on an expedition. You got lost? We got, well, well, stranded. We, we got stranded because one of it, we were climbing up. We didn't have the right equipment. We kept climbing, kept climbing. It started snowing like it does up these mountains. Snowed and snowed and snowed. And we got, we got totally... And one of the lads slipped and fell over the edge of a cliff. We just started screaming on the way down. We thought, well, he's dead. And we clambered to the edge and looked down. And he was just lying there still. It was awful. So we had to climb down to get you. And that took an hour. And he was still alive. He had broken legs. So we had to stay there. Right? We had to use what bivouac equipment we had which wasn't a lot and just sit it out on, on in this snowstorm all night we all got hypothermia and we got airlifted off by the um by the uh, uh the um ref in the morning they loved that the ref <laughs> save the Winching navy sailors off of a mountain yeah <laughs> and they, they sent me boxing without any training and i got wow. i got battered in ross on way um we stayed in the sas camp the night sterling lines and then uh, they took us to the venue, and I could see this, my opponent warming up. He was like a blur. His fists were a blur. And I thought, I've had this. I'm just going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to steam him the first 20 seconds and just try and knock him out because I'm stuffed. And he, he was just jabbing me head off, so I just kept hitting him in the nuts, and I got myself disqualified. <laughs> so the Navy did their best to try and kill me in, in many different ways. Uh, and in the end, they gave up, and they said, you know, he, he, he said, uh, just go. He said, well, what, what are you planning on doing next? This is my officer. I said, I want to be a Butlins redcoat, sir. He said, piss off, Williamson. <laughs> Brilliant. That's amazing. Right, I'm asking you another question okay. before, we, before we get into the big E. Uh, right, where are we at? Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, you're going to know this one. Oh. Maybe I should change it. No, you're going to know this one. What did Charles II in 1662 allow on the English stage for the first time? Uh, King Lear? Women. Oh, women. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah women. Oh, I'm getting mixed up. It was George III bang, they banned King Lear because the king was mad. Right. Always listen to... Ask me another one. You want another I've, one? I've got to come back for All right, all right, okay, okay. Um, what did Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Falk and Rex Harrison have in common? They lost an eye. Yeah, they were all one-eyed. Yeah, very good. All right, we'll carry on then. Sammy Davis definitely did due to a car crash. Who was the other one? Peter, Peter Falk, Falk and Rex Harrison. Rex Harrison only had one eye? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, well, it was yeah, he was one-eyed. Did you so didn't say what did Rex Harrison and Peter Falk? Yeah, Hall yeah. If I'd started, yeah. if I'd started the other way, it was, it was yeah. Sammy Davis Jr. that gave it away. Yeah. Well, it's in there. You got it. Uh, so now you are. I think you're you're, you're definitely on, out on top now. You've answered more correct than you. You're over fifty <laughs> Just... percent now. I'll have to go back over it and do. It. I'll give you. We've got two more to go. But <laughs> here we go. We, we'll come full circle now. So you then went to acting school. Yes. You landed a part fresh out of acting school in EastEnders, but not Barry. No. Uh, so I went up for my very first audition. My agent said, you, you, you've got an audition for a part in EastEnders. I went, that's great. He said, it's a paramedic, uh, one line. Oh, okay. But they used to repeat it on a Sunday then, you see, and you got paid again. I said, this is, so I got like 450 quid. It's amazing. You know, three, three years of starving at drama school. Yeah. 450 pounds was a lot more money in 1994. So I think, great. So I went up and uh, uh, he said, the director said, right, could you read your line? I went, they're on their way. He went, great, thanks, thanks for coming. Uh, said, oh, thanks, thank you. Um, and then Major said, you got the job, well done. I said, oh, it's brilliant. He said, you're also driving the ambulance. Oh, no, I can't drive. So I thought, what do I do? Do I, do I own up and risk losing the job or do I just get a crash course off a mate and just wing it? Brilliant. A <laughs> Cra crash course of driving an ambulance. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I thought, no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll fess up, you know. And they went, oh, all right, I'll, I'll see what we can do. And then they said, well, you can be paramedic number two. He's got 16 lines. See? So when the part of Barry come up, they remember paramedic number two. Yeah. 
Also, uh, they, my, my agent said, then my agent said, six months later, you got an audition for the part of Barry Evans. He's going to be, they hope, a permanent character. Your audition's Thursday. I said, I, I was at Pinewood Studios working Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I said, I'm up here working. You know I am. Can they right. try and see me next week? Right. No. Yeah. At the end of the day, Wednesday, the first AD came up and said, we don't need you tomorrow. I said, get me the audition. That's the Amazing. second big stroke of luck. Amazing. Third stroke of luck was they gave me a character breakdown. It said, Barry is a big, good-looking blonde fella. His friends call him Golden Boy. I said, right, they've taken the, or what? Uh, and they said, no, the actor who was going to play Roy has dropped out and Tony Corns has taken over and you, Tony Corns looked more like my dad than my own dad. <laughs> Third piece of luck, right? That's brilliant. Got the job. That's brilliant. Very lucky. And you were then in EastEnders for the best part of a decade. Yeah, the first couple of years were a bit ropey because I'm watching them all back now on the drama channel, weirdly. Okay. Uh, and you see how few episodes I made in between 94 and 95. Because really I was a means to get Roy in. They didn't really know what to do with Barry, so they made him a sort of villain, and I don't do villains that brilliantly. Well, not as well as other, you know, some people are naturally villainous, Ray Winston or whatever, and other people yeah, just... Yeah. So they had me set fire to the car lot, give Cindy the number of the hitman who shot Ian Bill. I went to prison because of the car lot. And I said, well, is Barry coming back? They said, we don't know. So then I ended up... Think, I thought, well, that's it then. That was fun. And then um, a character called Nigel left, played by Paul Bradley. Right. Nigel was always the one walking around in big... Kipper ties and okay. loud jackets, and he was the comedy character. And when he left, they needed a, a chubby comedy funster in there, so they shifted Barry in, in Nigel's place. Nice. And I went back in, and that's when I got busy. So the last eight years were good. <laughs> I love it. And then after East, because obviously everybody knew you from EastEnders, and, and, and actually back then, I remember I was talking to um, Kevin Kennedy recently. Yeah, Corey. And he was talking about the viewing figures back yeah. then, you know, because you only yeah. had three or four channels. Yeah. So you're looking at 20 million plus every night yeah. tuning in. So, yeah. you know, you had a huge number of people watching you over the, you know, over the eight key eight, eight years. So you weren't just a household name. You were in the public's affections. You were Barry, yeah. you know, to all intents and purposes. You know, they only knew you as Barry. So I imagine yeah. you still get that everywhere, which is why it was so interesting that you then played on it, you know, quite significantly with, with Ricky Gervais, well, yeah. etc. I mean, back to your original point, you're right. We used to get 12 to 15 million people on a bog standard Tuesday when there wasn't even a murder. And if something big happened, it was like more like 20. Yeah. Uh, the record is held by the Angie and Den Divorce Papers, Christmas Day 1986, 30.1 million people. Because there was only four channels, you see. There was only yeah. a documentary about cheese on the other side. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and there were less leisure options. Do you remember when you had to watch Top of the Pops with your dad? That was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> Who's this idiot, long-haired idiot? Remember all that? Yeah. It's boy yeah, George, yeah. Dad. What was it? A bloke or a brass? What is it? You know. <laughs> uh, and it was. It was more of a communal thing, people watching television together. So you have massive figures. And you're right, the next day you go out in the street, one in three people knew you were. And that's a bit weird. Uh, so, um, I mean, you look at back now, I say this in my comedy act, you know, P uh, Prince Harry's wedding got 18 million people. Fat Barry's wedding got 20 million people. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Um so, yeah, but by definition, you just became famous. And it, it was a bit weird at the time. I remember when I set fire to the car lot, I think someone threw a stone at my window and shouted out arsonist. So, wow. then, so then I moved into, into a village and stayed in a village for another 14 years, you know, yeah. where everybody knew me. So, um, so yeah, it was a strange time. So, so you become typecast, full stop, right? right. That's the point you're getting at. You do become typecast. You can't help but be typecast. Now, when you leave, it's down to you. You either, no one's going to offer you Uncle Vanya at the Old Vic. No one's going to offer you the chief villain in the bodyguard. So it's up to you. There's two ways of doing, do, doing your career from then on. You either then reinvent yourself by doing really serious plays above pubs for £250 a week in parts. People wouldn't give you uh, uh, in, in the, the, you know, the West End or whatever. Right, right. 
I think Matthew Kelly did that after the uh, um, Come On Down, Stars in Their Eyes. Yes. You know. Yes, uh, he did. He went. He did go all kind of serious. Yes, and, because yeah, he was yeah, an actor. Yeah. Then he became a game show host. Yeah. And then he became an actor again, as it were. But yeah. now he's, he's regarded as a very serious straight actor. Right. He's played some great parts on telly. So you either do that or you drift into the grey area of television personality. Okay. You with me? Yeah. Game shows. Reality quiz shows, shows. Reality yeah, shows. Yeah, you're barging, you're big brother. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's the area that I went down. Uh, I had a young family. I needed money. So uh, I couldn't just hang around to wait for the offer to um, go to the RSC or make a movie. So something comes along, do you want to do this? It's X amount of thousand pounds. Yeah, okay, thank you very much. Yeah. And then, then you find you're so far down that route you, that you, you can't really come back again. You know, okay. I, I, I've, I've played some very, I, I did one of those murdering, um, I did one of those, um, I won't even say it, I can't remember it. If I come up with it now, suddenly I'll, I'll insult them. But that was quite a serious role. Um, and uh, other parts in Casualty and Holby, you can get away with it on those shows because you're the guest actor. But, you know, regarding... Yeah, the villain in the next series of Bodyguard. You, you ain't going to get the call. You're I always not, not going to get online. No, no. I always say it only takes one brave casting director to cast you as uh, a rapist or a kiddie fiddler. I'm not even joking. And suddenly Barry's gone. Right. You with me? Right, yes. If you play the part well enough. Yes. But it's, it's someone trusting you enough to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but so with that in mind, therefore, you know, when, I mean, Ricky Gervais is calling you up, you're obviously yeah. going to say yes. But nonetheless, if I remember rightly, at least for, for season one of Extras, your character name was Barry from EastEnders. Yes. So you must have known you're playing into that. Yes, you know, you're, big time. You're kind of separating yourself from that role in, in yeah. Line of Duty or whatever even further, aren't you? Big time. Because they phoned me up and they said, look, we'd like to be in this series uh, called Extras because I'd love The Office. And, I said, and they said, you will get the mickey taken out of you, but we all will. I yeah. said, well, well, who's all? He said, Ben Stiller, Kate Winslet, Samuel L. Jackson. I went, I mean, <laughs> you're too right. You know what I mean? Too right. Well, you've got to do a scene with Bowie, for goodness sake. In the second series. In yeah. the first series, I was just in the office with Stephen, which was wonderful. And then when the second series um, dropped on the mat, not all emails then, kid. Um, I was, yeah, it was out and about with Bowie, all sorts of different scenarios. And it was wonderful. And then we did the Christmas special. And then they put me in something called uh, Life Too Short with Warwick Davis. Yes. And I went out on the road as a cabaret act with Les Dennis and Keith Chegwin. <laughs> it was just fun. You think, all right, I'm typecast myself, but who cares? You know what I mean? Yeah. What a laugh we're having. Yeah. And I've had a laugh and I've done some fun. You, you mentioned something called Five Go Barging, right? Right, yeah. I was on a barge for two weeks. I was I woke up in the morning with a cup of tea by Lord John Prescott. Come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? So is that, has that been sort of part of the decision making then so, since EastEnders? Is, has it been sort of like, well, instead of the lofty, you know, highbrow roles, let's just choose the fun. Obviously, you've got to think about the pay packet as well, because yes. you've got a certain certain lifestyle and you've got three kids, etc, etc. You know, these things all cost a lot of money. Yes. But it does strike me as that, that there seems to be something that has defined the choices you've made after EastEnders. And that, that is that they have been a bit of a laugh. Yeah, uh, it is. It is difficult. It is difficult. I, I know I can act. I, I, I can. I, I remember certain scenes that I, I pulled off very well in EastEnders. Yeah. Every now and again, you're asked to pull off a biggie, whether it's breaking down, crying, yeah. you know, and all that sort of thing. And I always managed to do it. Always managed to do it. A typical bloke. I always said to the director, "Look, do my close up first, right? Because I've got, yeah. you know, I've got two takes in me. Do you know what I mean? Of really breaking <laughs> down and all that. Yeah, yeah. And they did, and I always nailed it. Um, I'm not being big headed, but I did. And, and if nearly everyone in soaps do, that they're very good actors. <clears throat> Called upon suddenly to do the breakdown scene or whatever, or a big comedy scene, or they they always nail it. I, I would say. Um, so it's there, it's there. But as I said, you understand people not queuing up to have you as 
a murderer or, or whatever, or a spy. You know, you understand it. Yeah, but you can change that, as, you, as you've said. So, well, well, you know, oh, yeah, the... no, 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 not after lockdown. Yeah, well, <laughs> You'll be yeah. seeing me in lots more fun things coming up in the next couple of years. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. Well, let's get on to that after the next question. Okay. Right, uh, this is my favourite question of all. Um, what is SPAM an abbreviation for? <laughs> ah. uh, uh, spiced and preserved ham. Bingo. Love it. Okay, I'm going to give you, while you're on a roll now, I'm going to give you the last one as well, because uh, I, I like this one too. King George IV. So we're looking at 1763 to 1830. Right? He introduced an innovation in footwear, which was widely copied and is commonplace today. What was it? An innovation in footwear. Uh, it can't have been the heel, because he was a short man. I, it's correct, it's not the heel. Uh, it can't have been a zip. <laughs> also not a zip. An innovation in footwear. Uh, Lace-ups. Not quite. <laughs> he introduced separate shapes for left feet and right feet. Oh. So until that time, all boots and shoes were worn exactly the same on either foot. That was a rather uncomfortable. Bit weird, wasn't it? Because the, king, the kings used to have somebody whose job it was to walk around breaking their, their, their shoes in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very nice. Cushy, cushy gig. <laughs> well, not really. You'd be crippled, wouldn't you? Well, crippled after I, two years. I don't know. It could be worse, couldn't it? You know, I mean, it could, have, could have been several other things in the that court. Well, you know precisely. Well, someone that. Well, no. Go so, on. If, if a young prince, the young <clears throat> prince or heir to the throne, misbehaved, they whipped some other poor little sod. <laughs> it wasn't the prince. God, that's not. I mean, yeah. So we're hoping that the prince became friendly with him, so that, that he'd, he'd try and prevent them. But if he was a sadistic little, you know what, then it wouldn't bother him. So, yeah. Damn. Yeah, I'd rather break in the shoes. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I'll take the shoes. Um, so come on, Lee, you've, you've alluded to the fun things coming up because obviously coronavirus has changed everyone's everything. Well, no, what, what I meant was we're so skint after coronavirus, there'll be lots more fun things coming up because I'll be going, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll, I'll take I'll, it. I'm going to change my answer phone message to I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, you've obviously phoned me before and heard what I do. <laughs> so, I mean, has, has the phone been, I mean, it must have been ringing because of who you are, but what sort of things can we expect to see from you in the next... I don't know, 16 months. I honestly think, I, I, I hope to God, another book. I really do. Because, because look, I, I don't want to be depressing, but if these lockdowns keep happening, yeah. because the way that I earn my crust in between filming is uh, I, I do cabaret and stand-up comedy on P&O cruises. I do Warner's Holiday Camps. I do, uh, um, sorry, Warner's Holiday Hotels, festivals. Yeah. So if, if, if we keep getting these outbreaks, and we're stuffed. Right. We're stuffed. So I honestly could do with becoming an author who can also act and do stand-up comedy nice. because at least you can work. Yeah. And people will always need to read during lockdowns. I'm being deadly serious. I mean, it's a nightmare. That's a really You know, good it's point. a nightmare. So I want to carry the writing on. I really do. So, but, but regarding, yeah, you know, look, if a fun thing comes up, whether it's the jungle, whether it's Strictly, if they want me, I'll be there. Yeah. Because to me, you're lying on your deathbed thinking, uh, you know, I'm really glad I waited six months for the phone to ring to get Uncle Vanya and it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I do. Whereas I was I on do. a barge with John Prescott and in, in the Big Brother house for 23 days, but it paid for me to get remarried and get a mortgage on the second house. And, and you know, I had, a I had a good fun. Yeah, absolutely. Now, too right. I mean, just, just a random one for you that's, that's a little bit political. I'm not trying to draw you out here. But, you know, we, we heard Rashi Sunak saying, you know, people in the arts might need to retrain. 
because of course theatres have been closed for so long we're seeing lots of cinemas shutting down bond infuriatingly keeps being postponed and postponed yeah. which for me is part of the problem um, what's your what's your sort of reaction to that? Well, this wouldn't be a problem if only he would take. Now, I'm not. I, I'm luckier than a lot of actors. I mean, as I'm, I'm a divorcee with a second mortgage, so I, I need. You know, I, I, it's been a nightmare for me. But picture the young West End actor who was in their first job and, and got, got their first mortgage on a flat in London. Yeah. For some reason, they didn't qualify for furlough. What is honestly the problem of taking their books for the last three years, averaging them, and give them eighty percent of that? Yeah. They pay tax. Just because they're not on a permanent payroll, it's irrelevant. Yeah. Here are my books for the year. Okay, we'll take your books from 1918 and 17. What's 80% of that? 22 grand, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah, there you go. You know. Yeah. yeah you know, what, what is wrong with that? So the, the reason why they're coming up with this retraining is only because he lets us fall through the cracks. Mm. And on, on one horrible level, he's right. We all need to find another form of income whilst we're waiting for the acting to come back because you can't just sit there twiddling your thumbs. Yeah. A lot of my friends are waitressing and waiting and there's nothing wrong with that job. But it's very galling, I suppose, if you're... Nothing wrong with waiting. I've done it and I've, yeah. done, and I've done bar work. But, then, but not only are they shutting them places down against they'll be out of work say, again. You can't get those jobs anyway. It's galling if you're a trained ballerina or a yeah. trained violinist or a trained this or trained that. Of course it is. Yeah. They've put as much into their training as an architect or anyone, you know, that yeah. to make themselves actors. Of course it's galling for them. But yeah, I'm all for people finding another way to earn money whilst the lockdown's on, but not to retrain and never go back to what they did. Quite, yeah, <laughs> exactly, 100%. Um, Sean, you've been an absolutely fascinating guest. I was Pleasure. delighted when I was told you up for a chat, and I was just, you've, you've proven me to be right. You've been really great, so thank oh, you very thank, much. I've really enjoyed it, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it, brilliant. Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio, in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. So my next guest is the hit-making, Grammy-nominated musical sensation. He's worked with everyone from Beyonce to Stormzy, and he's anything but mundane. I'm elated to welcome MNEK. How are you doing? Hello. Hello. Hi. I'm good. How are you? I'm, you know, plugging away as things go. And I must say, I'm so chuffed to be chatting to you, and there's so much I want to talk about. But one of the first things we've got to get into is lockdown. And how right now, once again, well, we're all just kind of missing hugs. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's my birthday on Monday. It is. It <laughs> so is. You can I'm be, spend, what, 26? 26. Whoa. 26. So I'm, I'm spending my birthday in lockdown. We love that for us. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. This is what we're at. I think it's the best thing to do as far as, uh, you know, keeping everybody safe and we are still in the middle of a pandemic and you know i've been working with uh absolute on this campaign that is really like you know it's been focusing on the importance of real life connections and i think sometimes as a result of our coping mechanism that has been social media and you know kind of a remote sense of togetherness uh we forget that how much we value uh being together in the same room yeah. uh so yeah i mean and, and i found this study really interesting actually because obviously i'm an old man you know when i was a teenager <laughs> there was no such thing as a mobile phone and twitter and facebook and all these ways of staying in touch with people so i've just kind of naively assumed that lockdown for gen z as they're called or gen z if you're not american uh you know it has just been kind of like well missing hugs and stuff but basically at least we're still in touch you know using our phones but that's not the case is it people are missing out and it's it's very naive of me to assume that the younger generation actually have have had it a bit easier than 
old men like me who are used to picking up a telephone and actually chatting to people. I mean, this is not to, this is not to say that, you know, it hasn't been a, a, um, a plus in this new age to have social media and to have ways of connecting with friends. I mean, like before lockdown, there was definitely a time when I'd be talking to a friend and I wouldn't see them for a few months and it would be like, oh, I feel like I'd seen you like last week because I saw your story yesterday. You know what I mean? But, you know, now it's very different. And I think as a result of not having the choice, you know, to do that per se in a lot of ways, uh, we kind of, uh, it's worth not taking for granted once we can be together again. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the stats, the, the, the stats show it is crazy. Like how, uh, how much, even as digitally connected as we are, we still crave, uh, real life moments. I mean, the thing that I, you know, I reckon looking at the stats myself, 40% of Brits are missing hugs and handshakes. My goodness. Uh, who are the sixty percent that aren't? I mean, you know, that's like, isn't that all of us? I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm so, alone in this, but you I know, love some, a hug. You, you know, you, you know, some people aren't really affectionate. Like, okay. some people don't do the whole hugging and all that stuff. I mean, I love a good hug, but I've had to be like, it's more like a hey and bye and leave the room as a, you know, just as a result of everything that's been happening. So, yeah, I, I miss a hug. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Actually, do you know what? I bet you're a really good hugger. You look like you'd be an amazing hugger. I do like a good hug, yeah. but, you know, pande- pandemic. Um, <laughs> Have you got, yeah. like, a way of... Because obviously right now we're locked down again, but there was a period where, you know, life was moving again and, and businesses were... So I'm hoping and assuming you were back in the studio working with cool people, laying down some, some grooves, etc. And so have you had moments where you've had to kind of say to people, you know, it's, it's the elbow bump or nothing? <laughs> I to be a bit more distant in as far as like sessions go. I've I've been working a lot, and you know I think I've been in situations where I've been around a fair amount of people, and you know constantly wearing a mask, sanitizing, doing that whole bit. Um, but you know, I it's a shame, but it's the reality of it all. It's just us coping with it, yeah. and I've 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 enjoyed going back into work. I think I was able to do the Zoom writing sessions, and that was cute. And I guess we'll do that more in the new year if this lockdown is extending. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing like real life. There's nothing like that like being in person and together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting stats that I saw in this in this kind of study was 82% of people are missing old work routines. Even the kind of slightly awkward, slightly dull, slightly, I think the word is mundane, the mundane bits. It's, it's real life interaction, isn't it, that we're missing? And I guess if we play on the word mundane, because that is not a word I'd ever associate with you, but if I could ask you, <laughs> because of this incredible kind of amazing number of super cool people that you work with all the time, who would you most like to have a mundane conversation with from, from your kind of, you know, Rolodex of cool, famous faces? Who would be the best person just to shoot a dull breeze with? <laughs> a dull breeze? Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, I mean... I could do it with Becky Hill, you know. Okay. I feel like with with Becky, it's like I've known her for such a long time, and I and I can afford to just, you know, chat some breeze. You know, it's not that deep. We can have small talk and just and just talk about ridiculousness because 
we're we're close like that. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like sometimes from time to time, I'll do that with Mabel, like because we've been working a lot on her her new album, and like we we spent a, a, a increased amount of time together, and it was like you know we'd be working, but then sometimes we'd just be talking rubbish, like, and that's the fun thing, like we yeah. just be. I, but I don't know how mundane that is. You know what I mean? It's not like the weather's nice today. That's right. And, you know, yeah. like yeah. things like that I, I don't really have with people because I like to be inside. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, what would you do? I need some more socks. Oh, I'll have to go to the shops. It's things like that. You know, it's like little things like that. People are even missing those kind of tiny moments, aren't they? I don't know where the socks thing came from. I mean, maybe I've got to look at it. It's fine. Do you, do you, do you, do you, do you do you have those conversations? <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you miss those conversations? Do you know what? I hadn't thought about that, but now maybe I do. Maybe. I, how are your socks? Are you okay? <laughs> well, they're new. They're white. They're, they've got a black stripe around them. So, yeah, you know what? I've got decent socks today. See, so. and you see, now I, now I feel like, you know, the world is turning in a better way again because we've had a mundane socks. Exactly. <laughs> this, will, this will be better in real life. You yeah. know what I mean? This it is just is. an indication of that. Yeah, because then I could see the socks i could see if the fabric was quality i could see how high up the ankle they're going you know i need to know more details i can't just have this little this little faux chat it's got to be a proper sock conversation a deep dive but i mean let's talk about context yeah hashtag irr okay. <laughs> <laughs> well look, i mean can i ask you about your lockdown experience because it's it's almost been a strange seesaw because we've all had this kind of we've all had this communal lockdown we've all back in it again and it's you know it's this kind of pandemic that we can't do anything about and yet, at least in terms of chart success, you've been absolutely smashing it. Is that a kind of weird thing? To, <laughs> do, what, do you know what I mean? I mean, Head and Heart's been incredible. What a hit. What a hit. And it was, what, like number one for forever. Like, basically, lockdown starts, Head and Heart, number one forever. Amazing. Well done, you. Is that quite weird because of it's a huge thing to celebrate. You can't go and celebrate. It's a massive achievement. You're what you're able to do a few stories on your phone about it, and that's kind of it, you know. Shouldn't you be out there <laughs> living it up? You know, I mean, there's there's also been, uh, you know, the KSI record really loved that came out uh, last week, and the little mix sweet melody song. Yeah. Those both went top ten last week, and yeah. I co-wrote on those. And come on, you know, it's been a weird time not to be able to celebrate it all, but. Um, you know, that time will come. And I think there's so much happening this year, like as far as work goes. I've been able to, like we, we were able to do Strictly and like able to do like little things like that that have been fun and uh, ways to uplift the song. I guess if anything, you know, sometimes when you're in the promo schedule for a song or for a record, you're going to here and there and everywhere in between. And I think the fact that we're able to do it all over Zoom and, you know, all of that stuff was kind of amazing and actually was, was fun because we really got to pick, you know, and be selective with the certain things that we were doing. Now, I, I, will, I will say Joel has had to do a lot of the heavy lifting as far as promoting this record. Right. And, you know, because I did the heavy lifting in singing it, but, you know, I think it's kind of like a nice, Part and parcel, and I, I loved, I loved John. I loved being able to share this success with him. Um, yeah, and shout out to Little Mix and KSI and everyone that I've been working with, and that's helped me this year because it could have been a very uh, overly stressful year uh, if not for just being professionally successful. <laughs> 
it's, that's the bad thing, isn't it? You know, 2020, you'll look back, say in 10 years' time, you'll look back on it and everyone will remember being locked down. But you'll also, you'll also remember the hits. You know, it's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 2020 will definitely be, uh, you know, a quite a yin and yang year. Like, yeah. you know, you get the duality of it all. Yeah, yeah. No, it's mad. And by the way, kudos on the Strictly. You took the roof off. My goodness. Your voice is sensational, isn't it? I mean, I'm the old man complimenting you here. Your voice is unbelievable. <laughs> wow. Loved it. Thank you. What a show. Really, really appreciate that. What a show. Was it kind yeah. of weird? Kind of a good opener. Like with all these kind of dancing legends in front of you as they're kind of going through their turns and these are people i don't know if you watch strictly or not but it's been on for forever right so it's been on since you were tiny 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 so you must have an awareness of it when you're seeing like anton dubek glide past as you're giving it the beans it i mean been... wait how tiny how tiny when did strictly came when did strictly start so, like 17 years now i mean i'm 26 yeah <laughs> so i mean I, I mean i was i was a big nine-year-old okay so basically <laughs> with uh, so with the Strictly thing, uh, that's the thing. I I don't watch it regularly. I always watch it when there's someone that I know that is dancing. Nice. And so this year, you know, uh, Clara, who we love, is uh, dancing. And so it was great to see her there and great to see familiar faces. And uh, I... I really enjoyed getting to actually perform the song because even now, you know, that getting to perform that song at that point, you, like months after it got number one, you yeah, know, it's yeah. great to just give it another boost and also just have uh, uh, re fall in love with it because I didn't get to perform it really. Yeah, so exactly. it was um, it was a really fun experience with Joel. Brilliant. I love it. That's really special. That's really cool. Oh, my word. So obviously the plan is now rocket fuel. You know, you're there. It's sorted. The world is your oyster. Who's who's coming up next for you? I know it's it might be Zoom related. It might have to be distance. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, how great would it be to have shares in Zoom right now? My word, you know. This is there. Yeah. This is this is it's not it's not a bad thing. I think the whoever said right away that Zoom is the place to be at knew what they were doing. Um, you know what? I think for me, it's just to continue doing what I'm doing, to continue being excited about music and. Uh, you know, I think I'm in a different point in my career now where it's it's just the priorities the priorities are different, you know what I mean? And I think that it's all about me being happy and excited about the things I'm working on, whether it be the music thing, whether it be, you know, executive producing things or, you know, even this absolute campaign we've been doing, I'm all about just doing things that really bring me happiness and also um, you know, put out good messages. Brilliant. Um, so, uh, that's the main objective and I know it may sound vague, but you know, it, it very much, it's, it's real. It's a vague world that's right kind now, of where I'm at. Right? You know, we, none of yeah. us know what's, what's coming or going at the moment. Tell me about the absolute campaign though, because there is a lovely thing that's, that's being created, isn't there? That will hopefully bring <laughs> a sense of community together for us all. Yes, there is. So, you know, there's a mural being made and, you know, I, the thing about it is that it's such a fun thing that we're doing and it's so great that we're um teaming up together and there's uh so there's great people alongside you know there's uh, I, I saw that advert the other day and i saw because the way that we've done it the way the campaign's been done is so fun and interesting because we obviously couldn't be in the same room 
Yeah. You know what I mean? We, you know, because this was in the middle of like the lockdown, and you know, we were able to really <laughs> cosplay us all being in the same room and uh, having that together moment. And uh, I, yeah, I'm just so excited to really be able to celebrate the life, the real life connections, and you know, uh, this uh, the artwork that we're planning to do. You know. It's in collaboration, you know, with fans of the brand, and you know, I, I can't wait to be a part of it. Um, I'm, 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 so, I'm also really excited to see the advert. Yeah, I'm really excited to see. It. I think it's going to be amazing, and I love that you sort of talk about you had to cosplay with the others because you know what that gives you as well, right? That's like another skill. That means that you you could potentially become like a Marvel Avenger because that's how like you're Chris Pratt and everyone fights <laughs> the bad guys, right? <laughs> I mean. I don't know if I have all the the um the chutzpah to do all that, but um either way, I think that's a, that's a good read. Why not take it? Take what would your superpower be? Just like while we're here, might as well. It will be disappearing. <laughs> it will it will be disappearing. I'll just fade out. You know what I mean? I just wouldn't even. It wouldn't be a sudden like okay, I disappear. It will be like I just fade out of the shot. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, look, my last one for you, because you've been such a delightful guest and I've really enjoyed our chat. Uh, the show is called Driven. It's about what drives people. And, and in this current pandemic, people are struggling. People are having a, a tough old time of it. And sometimes it's not that easy to get up in the morning and just keep going. So how have you just been able to keep a smile on your face, keep focused and, and not just kind of giving into the couch, hit Netflix and never and never moved? Ish. Well... I can honestly say that I tether between doing that and just finding the hotspot to just get up and, and get on with my day. Um, and I think for me, it's just uh, having, you know, even though it's not, they're not physical right now, just having positive messaging around everything you're doing, you know, even with social media, truth is, you know, we are so in control of what we want to see on social media. And there's so many things that can really bring us down. And there's so many things that can really just keep our mood up and give us that much needed serotonin. Um, so, I mean, I try to, you know, steer closer to things like that and to just keep my optimism up in that way. And, uh, and also remain excited about music. And, you know, music has always been my therapy as far as you know, beyond making it, even just listening to it, because I'm a fan first, you know? So I, you know, those are all bits of therapy for me. When in doubt, get the tunes on. Period. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. It's been an absolute joy. Listen, I wish you every success for the future. I hope the campaign is going to be Thank massive. Thank you. I'm sure it is. And uh, happy birthday for Monday. Have an amazing locked-in time. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Enjoy yourself. It's been an absolute pleasure. Take care. Driven with Andy J. It's Driven here on Talk Radio, and it's time for my final guest of the week, and that's Love Island star Shauna Phillips, as she's the up-and-coming dating guru. Now, Love App Happen have said that you have 16 bad dates before you find the right one. Is that right? 16 bad dates. That's like a good, good run. That's good for me. <laughs> I don't know if I've had... 16 dates. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty... Well, maybe that's the thing then, Shauna. Maybe that's the whole point. You know, maybe by the time you get to 16 dates, then you're sorted. You, you found the one. Yeah, I like to set the bar very low. <laughs> and 
my person, if I only ever have 15 dates in my life, then I can't, literally can't have 16 bad dates. So that's where my thought process is coming in. That's a good shout. Well, look, I want to talk about some of the details on this, but I've got to ask you about you. You sort of say that you're quite, I mean, does this mean you're quite difficult to date? Are you very, very selective and very, very picky? I think I probably struggle more with the the kind of the fear of striking out, I suppose. And if I can't, if I don't date, then I can't foul at dating. Wow. And I think that's my issue. I think I've got more of a fear of actually just doing it rather than the fear of it going wrong. And you do only learn from the mistakes and from the things that go wrong. So I think that's going to be my motto for 2021. I'm going to just write 2020 off and start again. I think I think most of us are doing that, to be fair, Shauna. But I mean, for someone <laughs> that's, that's like pensive, which is what you've just suggested around going on dates, to go on Love Island, that's bold because it's not just you seeing the, the kind of learning process of your dating, but it's all of us. I think me being a bad dater and me going on Love Island literally sums up my life. I don't know how it happened. I thought I was going on a two-week inclusive, and I ended up going on Love Island. <laughs> if you're going to foul, do it nationally. That is that's how I like to look at it. Do it in front of the nation. Brilliant. Well, look, I mean, some of these exactly. some of these statistics that that are around these sixteen bad dates are quite incredible. So I've got to ask you if you've ever done this, because of course it needs it needs to be known. Fifty-seven percent of Brits admit that they have to make an excuse to leave a date early because they just know it's going really badly. Come on, how many times have you pulled out the old, oh, I'm just, I'm just feeling a bit peaky now? Yeah, no, I have done that. <laughs> but, but I do think that I'm not an advocate for lying, but to, to lie in order to save someone else's feelings, I, I am all for. So I would rather say, oh, I've got an important meeting tomorrow morning rather than you are absolutely painful. Yeah. No, I get that. But then I've got to go home. There's like another way to do that, though, isn't it? I mean, 36% claim they've had a home emergency. I mean, that's vague enough to be anything. It could be as much as my bed needs me. But then this is the one that worries me, Sean. <laughs> like one in 10 have said their pets have died to get out of the date. I mean, no. Oh. That, that is my rule in life. You don't fake a death. Too right. Because God is listening. Yeah. And listen, my, Dempsey is a member of my family. and. There are actually family members that I would I would joke about that than I would my dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great uncle, whoever. Yeah, he's never liked him yeah. much anyway. <laughs> it's a good reason uh, to cancel Henry third. <laughs> <laughs> so come on, what sort of excuse? Because isn't it just easier, Sean? Like if, like according to this, like you, most Brits kind of know if a date isn't going well. I've obviously just been very naive, or or alcohol has always changed my mind about these things. I've never really had a clue until <laughs> until after the fact, and this is going back, like I say, decades because I'm a very old man. But isn't it just easier if you're having a date and you know it's not working? Isn't it easier just to kind of look the person you're with in the eye and just go, do you know what? It's not really right, is it? I'm not really feeling it. Shall we just call it now? Oh my god! Absolutely not. I couldn't. I mean, it is that is the better thing to do and the noble thing to do. But I have never claimed to be noble, and <laughs> I just can't. Physic. I, I couldn't. I couldn't do that. I would feel so bad. And I would much rather someone say that to me. Like if someone says to me, "This this really ain't going well," I'd I'd take that like on the chin. I would I'd accept that. But 
I couldn't do it personally. Really? <laughs> lie, lie, lie. <laughs> oh, wow, wow. Okay, well, fair enough. I mean, sure, tell, tell me about modern dating, right? Because this is how old I am. When I was dating, there was no such thing as a dating app. And I now have friends that met on dating apps. And, you know, I'm, I was, I'm old enough to be cynical about that. Like now I know it's a real thing. But like when my first mates got married who met on a dating app, I was like, can that be real love? And it turns out they're still together and they've got <laughs> kids. And it certainly is real love. And these things work. But... How does it, because you're a, you're a young lady on the dating scene, you know, you, you've, let's go back to 2019, okay, before the fame, right? Before Love Island, etc. Yeah. Would you be finding, you know, potential partners, etc. with the old swiping right? Would you be on Happen and some of the other ones and, and be like, okay, they look nice? Or would you just kind of go down the pub and see what happens? I was definitely more of a, like, I'd like to meet someone in natural circumstances. I'd like to meet someone in real life before any kind of pressure was on, on us. But I had a lot of guy friends that were on dating apps and literally scared life out of me. Like, seeing how they used to act and how they used to talk like amongst themselves um, about dating apps and about dates they've gone on, I just used to like, I could never, ever be on a dating app. And then I went on Love Island and realised that, do you know what? Dating apps probably would have been a more sensible idea. <laughs> uh, so the biggest you come, you come fast forward to 2020. Yeah, exactly. Fast forward to 2020 and I thought there were certain dating apps that I wouldn't necessarily go on just because of my guy friends. After kind of looking into Happen, looking at how they how they can kind of matchmake without actually matchmaking. They do kind of leave it up to you. To have that pressure taken off of you, that's what I like about happen. And then obviously the pandemic happens and you don't really have any other option but to use technology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting as well is you get to know quite a lot of detail about your potential partner before you before you meet them don't you I mean it's not just seeing a picture there's what they're into are we are we aligned in what we're what we're liking and stuff so generally if you're going on a date you know there's some common ground already which is quite a decent starting point isn't it yeah and I suppose it almost it gets rid of that kind of like the icebreaker and what do we talk about like you're, you can instantly talk about gosh like I'm I wonder where I've seen you before or oh, was it you that I kept seeing in Starbucks or something like that? You you even know that you're both coffee lovers. You even know that you both like walks in the park. There, there's something instantly to talk about. And it you kind of don't have to get straight into the whole, oh, so what are you looking for? Like that, that isn't the first conversation that you need to have. And that's what I like. Yeah, that's nice. Well, let's talk about you now, 2020 you, because obviously 2019 you was kind of a bit more organic. 2020 you, however. 2020 me is a mess. <laughs> well, I mean, well, what is it like for you? Because right, this time last year, you had like eight, 9,000 Instagram followers, which is great. But now... No, I had 1,000. Oh, did right, 1,000. Okay, if I stand corrected. Now you're looking yeah. at, you know, one and a half million. That's one and a half million random... You can't know them all. You know what I mean? That's a lot of people. So is that quite weird? When, when people are now approaching you now, are they trying to approach you because, you know, you're famous, or are they approaching you because they genuinely have romantic intent? Do you, do you see what I mean? Do you have to apply that filter to everything now? Yeah. Definitely, definitely. And that actually started when when I was actually in Love Island and, and that was still being filmed. As soon as new villa like housemates were, were coming in, they've watched you and they've got a preconceived idea about you. And you do start wondering, do you just want to be my friend because I could potentially be popular outside and you know that? Or 
do you want to be my friend because you just like me? You you start thinking about that straight away. Mm. Uh, so I do like to kind of, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a home person. I like, I still have the same exact group of friends that I had before Love Island. And I don't really like branching out of that circle. That is my, that is my bubble. <laughs> um, so I think that's another issue that I have. I, I don't like venturing away from that. And I think that's actually what you've got to do. You do have to kiss frogs, I suppose, to kind of find, find the one. And, I do think I would know, well, I'd like to think that I would know that if I was speaking to someone, either on a friendly basis or a romantic basis, I'd like to think that I would be able to spot their intentions. Mm. But you, you just never know. You really don't. Oh, I've never been more delighted to be married. I've never used dating apps before, but it sounds like if that's your thing, happens sounds like a, a good place to start. Now... That's it for this week's show. I've got to tell you about the next couple of weeks, though, because I'm so excited. We have two very special episodes for you, both from Stars from Top Gear and The Grand Tour. Next week, I am sitting down for the whole show with the one and only Jeremy Clarkson. Just he and I chatting. And then the following week, if you missed it earlier this year, I have a one-hour interview with the wonderful James May. So you can catch up with that just before Christmas. Driven with Andy J. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.